America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Oliker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also joining from the heart of Europe in Belgium. So this week, we are talking about the European Union's foreign policy as we embark further upon 2022, which has already been something of an exciting year between Ukraine, after effects Belarus, Kazakhstan, Bosnia. There's every reason to think that this is going to be a very, very busy year. So the question is, what is the European Union going to do about it all? And we should pay attention because the European Union is the world's third largest economy and has many, many tools at its disposal to ward off threats at its own borders and encourage peacemaking efforts further afield. From monitoring elections to financing peace funding efforts, the Commission uses these foreign policy instruments to make Europe's voice heard on the global stage. To talk about how the European Union has done that in the past and how it may do that this year and going forward, we are very excited to have with us Hilda Hardeman, who has many, many years experience working at the heart of the European Commission on just these issues. She is currently the Director General of the EU's Publication Office, uh, where her role is helping to communicate and make transparent the work of the European Union, its agencies and institutions. But she previously worked as the head of the Service for Foreign Policy Instruments, which uh, is to say acting as the EU's first responder to crises and looking for ways to resolve conflict and encourage peacemaking. Hilda, welcome to War and Peace. Thank you so much. Um, I'm delighted to be with you to speak about one of the most important topics for mankind, for individual human beings, and frankly, also for myself in my life and in my work. So delighted to be with you. So Hilda, how do you see the EU priorities and the tools available? Can Europe become uh, stronger in the world? We've had calls for a more geopolitical commission. What does that mean? What would it look like? How do you do it? Well, Europe has itself gone through an amazing uh, historical you could call it experiment, but a historical achievement, turning around a continent that itself has been torn apart by war and violence for centuries and has now, by deciding to work together for the common good, has managed to turn centuries of war into for now decades of peace and prosperity. And I frequently think that for the people who started this, not our generation, but the generation of our grandparents, that it must have been very, very difficult to move in a few years' time from first killing each other on the battlefield to sitting down uh, together and work on common objectives and thereby, by working on common objectives, stop making war. So Europe has itself managed to do that in its own environment. It has rallied other countries who wanted to be part of this 
exercise, who wanted to benefit from the prosperity, the peace that this conscious decision to cooperate has brought. At the same time, and we see it again, for instance, with what is ongoing today in the discussions on Ukraine, uh, Russia, the European Union is a very strong actor uh, in the economic field, in the trade field, but when it comes to the very classical geopolitical questions, there is work to be done. That is something that one is aware of in the European Union that our president, Ursula von der Leyen, has put very high on the agenda. Uh, She spoke about the geopolitical commission. She has put forward uh, the objective of a geopolitical commission. Well, and what does it mean? I think that it means that in all our internal policies, because Europe deals with almost everything that may go on in your daily life as a European citizen, that in all our internal policies that we try uh, to bear in mind the geopolitical uh, dimension and vice versa, that in how the European Union projects itself externally vis-à-vis the outside world, that we try to put forward the weight of all the internal policies that constitute the strength of the European Union. Now, do you move from, let's say, not being so present in the external field to being a top player at the table? That takes some time. It also takes an internal uh, change of of perspective and the change of perspectives for our outside partners internally because the classical external policy field has, of course, very largely been reserved for the member states. This is gradually being built up. It's also the member states that have the classical foreign policy instruments. Uh, The European Union itself is a big player when it comes to foreign aid even as a peace actor. Um, But as I indicated, this is a gradual uh, process that takes time and we need to take it uh, step by step. So the member states have militaries. They have NATO, almost all of them. So in terms of traditional instruments of state power, they have the big one. Uh, The EU Again, it has the peace-building instruments and the member states, let's say, have the war-fighting instruments. Do you see this shifting or do you have a different vision for how the EU can act on the global stage without becoming a more traditional actor? Well, we see a certain shift uh, taking place, certainly one shift that I have been personally directly involved in in my previous role as head of the Service for Foreign Policy Instruments, in this sense that uh, member states have decided to pool funding to be able to act uh, together as military actors abroad in support of peace processes to support the capacity of third countries in the military field. This is something that the European Union still cannot do, um, but member states have decided to work together in this regard. They have created this European peace facility um, and they have asked the European Commission and the Council of the European Union 
to run uh, that instrument for them. So I think that that is one example of a step where you see member states drawing the conclusion from the fact that it has advantages uh, to pool your resources rather than play it all individually. And of course, these military instruments which remain limited uh, so far they complement the toolbox that is important, that is already available at the level of the European Union and where, again, in my previous role as head of the Service for Foreign Policy Instruments of the European Commission, I have been working over the past years. The European Union is, I can say, really one of the big players in the world when it comes to conflict prevention, supporting mediation, uh, supporting peace-building processes, uh, supporting dialogues. And I have always felt in my role that the fact that the European Union has this historical experience from going from a war-ridden region of the world to a very peaceful region of the world, that it gives the European Union a certain credibility. Also, the fact that the European Union is not, let's say, seen as part of the big power games. We were talking about the negative sides of that, but it has also positive aspects. Uh, It means that in conflictual situations, in difficult situations, that there can be more space for a player like the European Union to come in, to provide advice, to provide support, than there would be, I think, for one of the more traditional big power players. Hilda, when we see the impact of the European Union outside its borders, which mix of these things works best, do you find? Is it a particular kind of instrument, like a humanitarian relief or ensuring internal stability support for that or something to do with uh, naval assets? Or is it a regional thing where the European Union has more luck in Africa or East Europe or even globally? What's Europe best at, if you had to list them? I honestly think that there is, uh, for situations like that, absolutely no one size that fits all. We speak about an integrated approach, an approach that brings together every possible tool that you can think of. Of course, you need humanitarian, but you need mediation. You need uh, to show that moving towards peace brings also a certain peace dividend for the population's concern. So you also need economic support. What I think is the most important is to well understand what's going on in a given context, preferably before it goes wrong, and to try and think what you need uh, in that individual situation. So if you ask what works best, having a good analysis, and then making sure that you very quickly can mobilize all the tools that you need. So you need a well-equipped toolbox. You need good uh, mechanisms for early warning, uh, for horizon scanning. We work for that in the European Union with any possible actor or source of information that can be useful. I'm very proud to say that we have a sort of standing arrangement also with you in crisis group who 
who help us with your expertise and your knowledge to scan the horizon as to what is going on, what is coming up. So in short, you need to know what's coming up, what's going on. You need to be able to analyze it and you need a very well-filled toolbox and a lot of flexibility to be able to deploy what you need in a given context. It also means that you need to have very short lines of command. And this is something that I have to say we can be very grateful and very positive that the member states of the European Union understand that and have created a sort of special context for uh, conflict prevention, crisis response, initial peace building steps that as opposed to the more longer term, more development oriented approaches that has very, very flexible arrangements and very fast and nimble ways of working. And I would like to add here uh, one observation on my side. I have been thinking a little bit as to what is evolving in the landscape of, if you can call it like that, of conflict, threats to peace. And I would say that one of the things that I remark is that the speed is getting higher and higher and higher. And why is that? It's, I think, to a large extent due uh, to the type of world in which we live, in which information moves very fast, in which almost every person anywhere has a means uh, of communicating uh, very directly. So, um, the methods that you had in the past, we spoke about the triple nexus, whereby you would have a sequencing between humanitarian and then crisis response and then development in a certain way. And I think that a situation like Afghanistan has shown it very, very clearly to us. Things can evolve nowadays very, very fast, much faster than they did a number of decades ago. And it means that if your business is to work on conflict prevention, crisis response, mediation, peace building, that you need to be able to act very fast and you need to have the full array. And that is something that I believe the European Union can pride itself in having of course, combined with a very wide network also of presence on the ground. We have delegations everywhere. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. And we are talking to Hilda Hardeman about the European Union's foreign policy toolkit and how it is evolving. So Hilda, you talked about early warning and awareness, particularly in an increasingly fast-moving environment. I want to ask you how you now, recognizing this may all change, how you now see the EU priorities for foreign policy for the next year? Where are you most worried about and just where do you think the EU should be focusing its energies? Uh, thank you for the question, but I would like to narrow down my answer to a more precise field because I would like to talk about the area that I know best and I think for the bigger picture, others are better placed than I am. But for the more narrow picture, I would not want to focus on geographical areas. I think that history shows us, also recent history, that we can be confronted with conflict basically anywhere. 
also in places where you wouldn't expect it to happen. If you only virtually scan in your head the news of the past year and months, you'll know what I'm talking about. But priorities, really, I would repeat three times. Prevention, prevention, prevention. Prevention is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to prove that you've done it because you never know what would have happened if you wouldn't have done it. But it needs to be your prime consideration. And it's very high on Europe's list. For that, you need horizon scanning, early warning. And that is, is something on which the union is investing more and more. Then the second point that I would put forward as a big priority, and it's also linked to the way in which we see the world technologically evolving, it's the issue of disinformation. Uh, disinformation is as old as mankind, but the difference is that today people have tools to spread disinformation that did not exist two centuries or let alone two millennia ago. And it means that disinformation has become an incredible force for the bad, an incredible force for stoking up a conflict. And we have to work on that both internally and externally. And then third priority, and that's nothing new either, it is about building up capacity worldwide, uh, mechanisms, capacity to mediate, uh, capacity to work for peaceful solutions. You can, as we all know, even from our daily family life, every issue can be solved either peacefully or in a conflict-oriented way. We need to build up worldwide a capacity to deal with issues in a peaceful, solution-oriented way rather than in a conflictual way. Hilda, you talk about prevention, prevention, prevention. This is exactly coincides with our view at International Crisis Group. And as you say, it's so hard to prove. But when you look back at 2021, could you give us an example or two of where you think that a prevention campaign or prevention intervention has worked for the European Union? Well, I would find it a bit difficult to talk about the EU because, as you can probably imagine, I would say the bulk of what we do in this field, we do under the radar. We do not want to be seen. We do not want to be known because if you are contributing to prevention or to also mediation, it doesn't help if it's known outside. But I would come back again to the issue of disinformation, which we have made a big spear point of our work over the past year, working in several continents with, I think, very positive results. As we all know, the pandemics has brought an extra accelerator for disinformation, also in a way that contributes to conflict between different groups across the world. And we have put a lot of effort in building up networks, building capacity for fact-checking, awareness raising on disinformation, building up feedback loops between local people and the authorities, working with, as I said, authorities, civil society, the tech companies, to try and contain disinformation as a vector of conflict across the world, in Latin America, in the Middle East. So this is, I think, one element that I would definitely want to mention for 2021. The other example that I would want to mention is related to a concrete case, Colombia. 
We have celebrated this year the fifth year of the peace agreement. The European Union has been, and the service that I have led in concrete terms, has been extremely active and important in helping the peace agreement uh, come about in Colombia. You will ask, where is the link with prevention? Well, we all know that conflicts that have been put to a solution are extremely risky to flare up again. And I think by the combined action of the European Union, people in Colombia from different sides with all the mechanisms and structures that have been built also with our support, with the advice that we have given, but first and foremost through the daily action of the people on the ground. I think that we can be happy that the very positive developments in Colombia five years later, while under pressure, are holding and that there is a strong awareness in country about how precious this agreement it is and how important it is to do everything possible to continue building peace rather than relapsing into conflict. So those are two examples that I would like to give. Thank you. I want to follow up on that. There's a question where there's an area where the EU has been looking to be increasingly active, and I would argue it's very important for the EU and other actors to be proactive, and that's climate. And the European Union has been a leader in thinking about climate issues. It was one of the first um, international bodies to identify climate change as a threat multiplier. So more recently, the Commission's European Green New Deal talked about green diplomacy, green alliances as foreign policy pillars. How does this work? What's the plan and what are the tools that the European Union is going to use to push this agenda forward? Well, thank you. That's a very important point. Indeed, let's say that conflict and climate, in a way, it's a sort of special case of conflicts over natural resources, which once again are as old uh, as is mankind. And climate change exacerbates such conflicts over natural resources and creates new types of conflicts over natural resources. The European Union wants to be a front runner when it comes to dealing with climate change. And I think this is something we're really try to talk. Now, if we link it to the world outside and to what we can do and what are the different tools that we have. On the one hand, from a more narrow uh, conflict prevention crisis management perspective, we try really to come with specific approaches, specific solutions to those situations where climate change-related developments exacerbate conflict. I give you one example, the tensions between herders and farmers in many parts of the world, where climate change is meaning that a century-old arrangements are falling apart. But there is much, much more than that. If we want to address the climate challenge, we have to work together with everybody else in the world. We can deal with this only if we all pull in the same direction. And here, the European Union has been a frontrunner in bringing other nations along, in showing that dealing with climate change and development can go together, in using its development assistance to support third countries in their actions, and also in further developing, you spoke about alliances, 
increasingly finding like-minded countries. And they can come from from corners uh, that you would not expect, but using economic or development approaches to bring others along, help them see what is in it for them and thereby build up gradually the group of countries, of nations, of players, of regions that want to tackle climate issues as a common challenge. Talking about bringing others along, Hilda, slight change of direction, but you are in a new job with publications and the kind of thing that I try and do as Director of Communications for Crisis Group is to pull people into the ideas you're seeking to communicate. How is the European Union doing? There's a lot of talk about fragmentation, renationalization, and I come from a country which has completely renationalized itself. Brexit has been a personal disaster for me, um, but it is the result of a long-term trend of people going cold on Europe. What is the trend from your perspective? Are you seeing figures that show that just as many people are reading EU publications? Do you have worries about the overall direction of travel here? I think that we need to look uh, from different angles. There's on the one hand the value that people attach to the peace and prosperity that we have in the European Union. And there it's interesting to see, and I think that the risk of conflict or the actual conflict that is happening just outside the European Union's borders is playing a role in that. We can see in the so-called Eurobarometers, which are very big, polls uh, in the European Union that test the level of appreciation that citizens have for the European Union and the issues that are first and foremost on their mind, we can see that appreciation has been going up to quite high levels. Generally, it's higher than appreciation for national governments. And we also see, and that is something of the last, not even decade, I would say, but that the concept of peace, which is at the basis of the European Union, has moved from something that people have been taking for granted for decades, is all of a sudden moving up again into a value that people appreciate the European Union for. That's one angle. Then you were talking about publications and are people interested. I would reply to something that is related to the pandemic. People are interested in publications and information that is of relevance to their daily lives. And it is for us in the European Union, I think, one of our tasks to make sure that what we bring to citizens is in line with what citizens have an interest in and what citizens want to hear or to read about. So we have seen a very big surge in the way that citizens look at what the EU is doing, at what the EU is providing related to the pandemic. We have also seen, and that is a a development that we further need to use, so what do you use when you want to find something? I think like many, many people, we take our phone, we go to a certain website that we all know from a certain company, and we type in the word and we see what comes out. But we can see that by targeting the information that we make available, the data that we make available to topics that people really are interested in, that even through the avenue of these big tech companies that people end up with our sites, with our information. And of course, we want to create a sort of virtuous circle whereby 
people are looking for something that is of direct relevance in their daily life, but then end up with the many, many things that the European Union is doing every day and that have an actual impact on how you, each of us as European Union citizens, can live that, that daily life. So, so that is what I would like to contribute here. So, and that is, I think, an excellent note for us to end on, conveniently, as we are, in fact, out of time. But Hilda, thank you so much for joining us. We covered a lot of ground today, and I think there's certainly a lot of room to keep talking and also to keep watching how the European Union continues to evolve in its tools and how it uses them. So, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's a great pleasure. And I still want to say I've been working very closely with Crisis Group over the past years. I have much appreciated that cooperation. So please continue what you're doing. It's a matter of uh, life and death, I would say, of war and peace. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And, you know, the feeling is very, very mutual. And to learn more and to keep track of uh, the work of the European Union, you can follow Hilda on Twitter. She is at Hardeman Hilda ML. She's also on LinkedIn, where you can follow her. And the website that you might want to take a look at, which uh, just has a tremendous wealth of information, the one she was talking about, is op.europa.eu. And if you want to have a look at Crisis Group's work on Europe and its neighbours, check out the regional pages on the left-hand side of our website. That's crisisgroup.org. And also, we will be publishing on the 27th of January our annual list of 10 conflicts that where Europe and its member states could have most impact. And uh, look out for it. It's called the, the watch list for the European Union. You should also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olya Olaker. We are also on Facebook and Instagram as at Crisis Group. Please do tweet to us with any suggestions you have for the podcast, future guests and so forth. We will be looking for them. And you can also email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And of course, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or a review. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts focused on Europe, Europod. Check out some of the others. Big thanks to producer Boo Media and to our coordinator, Finn Dunbar-Johnson, who helps Olya and I prepare for each and every episode. And the biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. We are looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. Goodbye for now, though. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.